Anyways, welcome here. Uh, we are continuing our series called Woman Board. This is the last uh, Sunday, obviously, before we get to our Christmas Eve service. And uh, we have been looking at uh, the genealogy of Jesus and looking up looking at kind of the messed up family that Jesus comes from. How many of you guys have a messed up family? A couple of elbows down the rows. Okay, there's a, f- there's a few of you. I'm sure if we all went back into our, our family history far enough, we, we could find some interesting stories. And we find that when we look at Jesus, we look at the genealogy of Jesus that we find in the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. And uh, it has a list of a bunch of names there. And, uh, and so we've been looking at those names. We've been looking particularly at the, the names of the females that are in that list. And, they're the inter- and we've been looking at the inappropriate biblical stories of four uh, scandalous females uh, who delivered the deliverer. And as we looked into the story, we start to realize the scandal that was going on wasn't really all about those females, but the, sometimes the stories that, that surround them. And so... Uh, everybody's heard the Christmas story. Many people have heard the Christmas story. Uh, but what we're talking about is the story behind the story, which actually influences how we understand the Christmas story. And so to understand a genealogy, we need to know that this was kind of the ancient way of basically showing that somebody was, uh, came from good stock, that they were worth something. It showed their credentials. It showed their credibility. And so it was so-and-so from this person, from this family, and, and genealogies were kind of set up to show uh, that the individual they're referring to, in this case, which is Jesus, uh, was worth their stock, was credible. And that's what makes this so glaringly uh, awkward when you read it because Jesus came from a bunch of stories that you're like, if they were trying to increase Jesus' stock, that would not be the way to do it. You know, the, in the genealogy, we have uh, women, and that didn't usually happen in the genealogy uh, because in that time, women were... Uh, not seen as the same status as men. And so Matthew goes and throws women in there. And then when we look at the stories of those women, many of them were outsiders. They were foreigners. They weren't even Jews. And then you go even a step further, and we see that a couple of them were prostitutes. And if you were wanting to help people come to grips with the, the reality of Jesus, that he was the Messiah, that he was king, that would probably not be the way to do it. But I think Matthew has something else in mind. Matthew's trying to tell us that this, the conventional way of looking at the world and understanding our world is different uh, when it comes to the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is actually, it actually operates under a completely different paradigm than the world that you and I live in. And so this is what a genealogy looks like. This is the genealogy we see in Matthew. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, who was, whose mother was Tamar. That's the name we talked about the first week. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. We talked about that one a couple of weeks ago. Obed, Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. And Kendall talked about Bathsheba last week and the story of Bathsheba. And you go all the way to the end. And in verse 16, we see that and Jacob was the father of the 
father, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And so this morning we're talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, the mother of God. This is where the genealogy ends. We've explored reasons why Matthew included these other names. But Matthew's doing something fascinating here as he closes this genealogy and introduces the New Testament and the gospel. We see that Matthew is actually introducing the major themes of the gospel, and we see that uh, in Matthew and in Luke in reference to Mary. So to borrow from Home Alone, which I watched yesterday, uh, any Home Alone fans here? We got a... I got three points. A, God for us. Two, God with us. D, God in us. Uh, don't get it? Okay, there you go. Just uh, watch Home Alone again and, you know, Buzz has three points in the movie. And A, two, and D. I thought that was uh, clever. Anyways, look. Okay, so we look in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to focus in the Gospel of Luke this morning uh, because that kind of expounds the the story of Mary uh, the most. And so this is what it reads. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will name him Jesus, and he will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative, relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month, for the word of God will never fail. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. So this is the story of Mary. And we see that Mary, right in the, the first interaction she has with the angel, The angel says, don't be afraid, for you have found favor with God. Unmerited favor that God has towards Mary. And we we see the the first foundation of the gospel here that God is for us. God for us. Mary had really done nothing up until this point to earn God's favor. It just was. And the genealogy that we're looking at is the first place where we, we begin to learn that anybody can be part of the family of Jesus. And so when we read the names and we're like, why is that person in there? Why is that person in there? And then that's, that's the first indication that we're starting to get it. That nobody is beyond being in the genealogy of Jesus. That God is for us. God's heart is especially for outsiders, for outcasts, for those who are broken, Matthew uses these women in the genealogy to remind us where the gospel starts, and that's with grace. It has nothing to do with the inherent potential of the receiver. Grace is not easily received. 
Grace is, sorry, most easily received when it's met with an awareness of one's own need. One needs to be aware of their need for grace in order to receive grace. And so we see that these outsiders, the out, these outcasts, these that are broken, often become the most glorious examples of grace in Scripture. The one who is open to grace is the one that recognizes that they need it. When, they, when we look at the genealogy, we recognize these misfits, these outcasts, these single moms, the ones that were born to them, the prostitutes, the ones that were cheated on. Those are the stories that we've been looking at. These are a black drop to the color of God's grace in the gospel. And this is where it begins. God for us. It's all grace. No matter our status, no matter your history, no matter your situation, no matter your family story, I don't know your story, but this is where it begins. God for us. God for you. This opens up the possibility to the gospel story. God for us. God for Mary. So Mary, or more precisely Miriam was her name, It was a very popular name at the time. She's a Jewish girl. She was named after uh, Moses' sister in the Old Testament. She is not a person that would boost the status or the stock of Jesus. She was maybe even as young as 12, old as 14 years old at the time. She's poor. At that time, families like Mary's were taxed up to 90% from the Roman rulers. We know that she was poor because on the eighth day, uh, after Jesus was born, when they were supposed to go to the temple and, sac- and give a sacrifice and dedicate Jesus, uh, in Leviticus it talks about sacrificing a lamb, but it makes a concession for the poorest families and, say, and it tells, uh, Leviticus says, if, if you cannot afford it, you can uh, bring two pigeons. And we see in Luke 2 that Mary's and Joseph come and dedicate Jesus with two pigeons. We know that Mary was at the lowest rung of the economic ladder. She was poor. So Jesus was born into poverty. And beyond that, we know that this is all taking place in the village of Nazareth. And the significance of Nazareth is the insignificance of Nazareth. There's nothing there. Nazareth is... Nowhere. It's not even on a map. It's, you know, scholars say at most there was 2,000 people. Some would say there's as little as 500 people. The point is that Mary doesn't come from wealth or privilege or prestige. This was not part of her story. There will always be this anticipation that when God shows up, he's obviously going to show up among the talented and the gifted and the wealthy. And we just see that God bucks that story over and over again through Scripture. And he shows up among the lowly among the poor, among the desperate. We look to people that are going to, you know, maybe Harvard to change the world, but God doesn't actually operate in that way. He looks to those who had no chance of going to Harvard, and that was a person like Mary. She is poor. She's an insignificant peasant, and she comes from nowhere, Nazareth, and God chooses her to be the mother of God. And she's a virgin. And she says, how can this be, angel, if I've never been with a man? Joseph had not yet been married. And Mary had not yet been Josephed. 
We, we know that it takes two to tango, and this had not happened yet. And so she's betrothed, which means that they were committed to each other. And in that culture, it was almost like the beginning of marriage. Uh, and we know that because Joseph would later talk about divorcing her. So there was some kind of formal commitment that had already happened. Uh, but they were not yet living together. They had not yet consummated the marriage physically. There was no physical union. And maybe that was because she was quite young. Maybe she was 12 years old and mom and dad hadn't explained the birds and the beads yet. I don't know what. But it just hadn't happened yet. So we know that she's a virgin. We believe in the virgin birth. Uh, not only because the Bible tells us, because it's critical to the foundations of Christian faith. Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully human. And we see this mystery profoundly in the Christmas story. And this is why the virgin birth is so critical is because God actually came and entered into Mary. He was not born. He, Jesus didn't have a beginning with Mary. Jesus existed long before the story of Christmas. Mary was reading from John, and John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was there in the very beginning. But he comes in the form of a human. Jesus is God who puts on skin. God completely and utterly identifies with creation in the person of Jesus, and he doesn't even come in in the, in the elite places of society. He comes in in the lowest place to this peasant poor girl in nowhere, Nazareth. Here's the thing, the only requirement for a virgin birth is virginity. And this is the irony that the, the one requirement that Mary had to be used by God was the one thing that she wasn't, she actually could do nothing about. The very thing that should keep her from being able to fulfill the role of giving birth to God is the very thing that enabled her to do what God wants. That's the irony of the virgin birth. If God were going to ask you to do something, you would ask questions about your qualifi qualifications. If God asked you to have a baby, there'd be at least one qualification that you would need to have, right? Mary doesn't have it. But God is not interested in our qualifications. He's interested in our availability. And we see in the Christmas story that Mary is willing and available to be used by God. God is for Mary and no matter her story, no matter her situation, that is all that matters. The story is all taking place in the backdrop of Rome. And I'll just cover this really quickly because it's important to understand in the Christmas story. So there's Caesar Augustus and he's in his lavish palace in Rome. There's King Herod and he's in perhaps a more lavish palace in Jerusalem. The angel Gabriel comes to this poor house with his dirt floor and a thatch roof in the backwater of Gal backwaters of Galilee, talking to Nazareth, nowhere Nazareth, telling a 12-year-old that she's found favor with God and that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, and the word Messiah means king. Mary and Joseph are both descendants of David, and we've talked about that other weeks. So Jesus will be qualified and called to be uh, the, the son of David, in the line of David, a king in the line of David. So he's qualified to be the Messiah, which means king. The king of Israel. Central to the story of Jesus is that he was born a subject of the Roman Empire. Jesus was born during the booming economy 
of Rome when every coin had the inscription, Augustus Caesar, son of God. Every coin that they were using had that inscription. So think about how often that would pass through their hands and they would see Caesar Augustus, son of God. Meaning what? Meaning that Augustus Caesar had the divine right to rule. He had the divine right to rule. And so when we read son of God in scripture, we often think in terms of theology that Jesus is God's son, which is true, but it was also a term that was used politically for the Caesars to signify their right to rule, their reign. And so Jesus is born as King, Messiah, Son of God in this Roman culture. And then on top of that, he's given titles like Lord, Son of God, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, Savior of the World, and many of those which we attribute to Christ. But at that time, they were also, those are also titles that were given to Caesar. So when the angel Gabriel shows up in nowhere Nazareth in the little house with the thatch roof and the dirt floor with the title Son of God, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, and these are all titles for Caesar, we can already feel the tension that exists in the Christmas story. Which is why Herod would feel so threatened that he would order the genocide of those young boys to try and get rid of this king threat. So this is the backdrop of the Mary story. But none of those things mattered to Mary because God was for her. And that was all that mattered. God for us. I wonder if we put requirements on grace and belonging. When you hear the scandalous idea of grace, do we think, yeah, God for us, but, yes, but. Did you know that yes, but is not a name in the family of God? There is no yes buts. You and I have yes buts, but God does not. Unequivocally, God's posture for you and I and every human being is that God is for us. God is for you. Do you believe that? No matter your story, no matter your history, no matter your circumstances, no matter the decisions that you've made that you wish you wouldn't have, or to the decisions that you didn't make that you wish you would have, God is for you. That's the posture of God towards us. Secondly, God with us. This is the primary theme of Christmas. And we see this uh, in the Christmas story. We see this in the story of Mary. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. And elsewhere in the Christmas story, we, we know that Jesus is announced as Emmanuel, which means God with us. In John 1.14, again, the word became flesh and made his home among us. Jesus did not come into existence, like I said, at the time of the birth. Jesus was always in existence, but there's this unique point in the Christmas story where God makes his home among us. A fancy word for this is referred to as the incarnation. Anybody like carne asada tacos? I just, you know, every year I don't go to the Mexico trip anymore. I just, like, crave these asada. Like, if you're going to Mexico this year, bring me some carne asada back. I'm sure it'll keep fine. I'll, I'll, I'll eat it when you bring it. Incarnation means in the flesh, the meat. God came, put meat on, put flesh on. We see this in Philippians 2. 
Paul says this, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. There's a significant idea here in Philippians 2. And we read this in, the transla- in our translation. He gave up his divine privileges. The, the Greek word that is being used there is the word kenosis. Everybody say kenosis. So this word means emptied himself. That though Jesus was God, he laid aside his divine privileges as God, emptied himself of those privileges, and then took on the form of a human, of a slave, and died a criminal's death on the cross. Kenosis. To use it in the adjective form, we could say that our God is a kenotic God. Our God emptied himself and came among us. I, w- I was watching my son, middle son Luke, play soccer a few weeks back, and I was in the stands, uh, and the ball was kind of floating in the air, and he went, and he went to give a header, and there was... You know, they're kind of at that awkward age where some kids hit puberty early and some kids aren't quite there yet. And so you got like the kids that are 60 pounds and the kids that are like 180 pounds all playing together. You know what I'm talking about? This awkward age. And so, so Luke's in there and Luke's the, the smallest of my three boys. And he goes in to give a header and there's, a, there's this guy that, um, yeah, he, he's, been, uh, he's been on the puberty track for a while now. He's, he's a big boy. And so he, he comes in after the ball, and he can't, you know, he's too big. He, his coordination hasn't caught up yet, and Luke's going for the header. This guy sandwiches Luke's head between himself and the wall, and I just hear this crunch. Uh, and I'm watching in the stands, and immediately, as soon as the crunch happens, I get up, and I run, I run to the edge of the, uh, the soccer arena, and then I run around where the door is so I can uh, get on to the player's area. And, and what, what was happening in that moment as a dad, as a father, was I was elsewhere and something was happening with my kid on the field and I had to get from there to here. I think sometimes we have a picture of God like he's sitting in the stands watching us and we have all these experiences on the playing field of life. And we experience pain and we experience struggle. And we think that God is just somewhere distant, watching. And that belief is actually called agnosticism. This, this belief in God, but that he's, some, he's somewhere else, he's far off. The Christmas story tells a story of a canonic God, an incarnate God, a God that doesn't stay in the stands, that looks upon his kids at the pain, at the struggle, at the, at the sin that has happened to them and the sin that they've kind of projected onto others, and he says, I'm not going to stay in the stands and just watch. And the Christmas event is a story of God running from the stands saying, I'm not willing to watch. I'm actually going to enter into the pain, enter into the suffering. I'm going to come down to your level in the lowest of places and be God with you. 
God is a canonic God. He does not stay in the stands. He does not watch from afar. And if you are suffering in any way, may you know that the Christmas story, the gospel story, a part of it is that God is with you. It doesn't always mean that our situations are fixed or resolved, but it means that God didn't stay in the stands. God with us. And the third part of the gospel story that we see in the life of Mary is God in us. This is what it reads. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the, bo- so the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called Son of God. Karl Barth, who's a Swiss theologian, said that there's two moments in the Jesus story where God intervenes directly into the material world. The virgin birth and the resurrection. And it's no coincidence that our Christian faith is founded on those two events. Merry Christmas and Happy Easter. That is the, that is the foundation of the Christian story of the Christian faith. But though God intervenes directly, he does not override Mary's human freedom. Mary is free to say, thank you very much, but I'd rather not. Mary is free to say no. And this, if you're wondering why Mary is elevated and venerated so so much in Christian history, it's because her yes actually created the avenue for the gospel story to go forward. The angel awaits Mary's response. And Mary responds in this way. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. God's intervention into human affairs does hinge upon a human's yes in the story. God does not violate Mary's will. And T. Wright says, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, enabling her, as the Spirit always does, to do and be more than she could be by herself. But she had to say yes. Mary refers to herself as the Lord's servant. And in the, in the Greek, this word is doule. Everybody say doule. It's a, kind of a fun word to say. And this word translated servant, it's also the word from which we get our English word doula. A doula, if you know, helps a pregnant mother use her pain to give birth to a baby. A doula helps to bring new life into the world. They invest their time and energy to bringing about something new through pain. This is what happens when we say our yes to God. We participate in bringing something new into the world instead of our painful circumstancing circumstances being the means in which brokenness come to our world, our pain and our suffering actually becomes the means where healing and renewal come into our world. And we all know people like this. We know people who have experienced deep pain and deep suffering. And they somehow learn how to submit their pain to God, to say yes to God, so that something full of life grows inside of them and is birthed out of it. It opens these types of people up to being more compassionate, more loving. And you and I want to be in their presence because there's hope around them. 
They give us hope. They point to a better future. And in a very practical way, they become many Jesuses to us. People that have gone through pain and suffering and out the other side actually give us hope and point us to a greater reality than the one that maybe we're currently experiencing. And we have the same potential in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, to allow to God to come into us and let him transform our weakness, our suffering, our pain into a place of renewal and healing and life. We have this canonic God that empties himself that is actually looking for canonic people. Now follow me for a second. This canonic God that gave up all of his privilege and all of his rights, that came to walk among us, to be among us in the dirt and the pain and the suffering. This is the Christmas story. But in order for that to happen in the way that he would like in our lives, we have to give him a yes. In fact, we in turn respond to God emptying himself by emptying ourselves and giving up our privileges, giving up our rights, giving up the right that God gave us to make our own decisions and be the king of our own lives, and we actually surrender that and we say, God, I'm an empty vessel. I'm emptying myself. I'm going to create space in my heart and my life for you to be formed in me. So God invites us to empty ourselves as well. And we see as Mary does this, this is what happens. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she explained, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Mary will be called blessed among women because she said yes. But saying yes does not mean that Mary's life is going to be easy. In fact, there's a very oversimplistic narrative in the Western world around Christian faith and the gospel. And that narrative is, if you say yes to God, you say yes to Jesus, your life is going to get easy. You're going to be blessed. And we see the paradox of that in the, in the Christmas story where Mary is identified as, as a woman who is blessed. But what does that mean? If she says yes to God, she will live her life under the shadow of implied scandal. You know, this is why the angel showed up to Joseph in a dream and said, don't divorce her, because Joseph knew how this looked to the outside world. And so the angel revealed to Joseph that, that this was actually God's doing, and she wasn't cheating on him. But think about it. Joseph was the only one that had the angel tell him that. The, the rest of the world around them, their friends, their family, their community, didn't have the angel tell them that. So for, for Mary to say yes to, to God meant that Mary was going to subject herself to this implied scandal, to the rumor mill that was going to happen. And we know that after the baby was born, King Herod and his police state gave a death threat that we mentioned to kill all the baby boys. And so Mary had to run for her life as a refugee because she said yes. There was no decorating the nursery. 
No shopping for the newest crib. No posting cute pictures on Instagram and sharing with your friends. This was not the birth experience for Mary. She had a kid and had to run for her life. And then on top of that, you start to wonder if she ever felt guilt over the massacre and the genocide that happened in Bethlehem. Though Jesus escaped, others didn't. And because Herod was trying to kill her babies, other babies got killed. Can you, can you imagine how that must have felt for Mary? Seeing the massacre, the genocide that was happening and knowing that this happened because I said yes. And we know that 33 years later, she was there at the cross watching her firstborn son die like a criminal at the hands of the Rome, Romans. Mary's yes came with pain. And this is why we read Elizabeth saying to Mary, you'll be blessed, but in the next chapter, there's a prophecy given to Mary by Simeon that says, you will, what does it say? Is there something about the sword? I, I don't remember. Uh, but you will experience pain. You'll experience, it refers to the sword, but there's a prophecy that's basically saying, you will experience pain. You will experience suffering. And so, one chapter, she's blessed. In the next chapter, it speaks to reality that she's going to experience pain. What if saying yes to God gets you in trouble? What if saying yes to God means that there's going to be some baggage that you're going to have to struggle with? A sword will pierce your heart too. That's, that's what the prophecy is, sorry. Uh, in Luke chapter 2, Simeon says, The Lord will pierce your heart too talking about the destiny of Jesus on the cross and saying, it's not only going to be Jesus that suffers, it'll be you as well. This is the paradox of our faith. So I think labor is a beautiful image to talk about the gospel story and the Christmas story. You and I are pregnant with potential. We are pregnant with possibility. I a number of years ago, I woke up in the middle of the night with deep pain in my abdomen, like the worst pain I've ever experienced in my life. And I tried to tough it out, um, but I was in like a cold sweat, and I was like starting to like not even be able to focus, and the, the world was spinning because I was in so much pain, and Lisa's like, I think we got to go uh, to the hospital, and so we had called some people to watch the kids, and we drove to the ER, and... And all the time I was driving, I, I, I have this memory of sitting in the passenger seat, just like nodding, even being able to focus because I was in so much pain. And so I get in there, and they, uh, they tell me that I have kidney stones. Uh, and then I'm in the middle of passing a kidney stone. Uh, and apparently this hurts, and I, I had heard about it before, that this is a painful experience. And, uh, and I actually had a nurse at the time that came to me uh, and said, you know, I've had kidney stones and I've given birth and I think I would choose birth instead of kidney stones. That's what she said to me. I said, I'm not going to tell my wife that. I'm not, I, that's not a trump card that I'm willing to use. Uh, just put that. And, and then eventually the kidney stone passed and, and I, had it in, I have it in like this little container. It's just like this little, it's like this little speck. You can come and see it if you want. Um, it's like this little tiny speck, and I'm like, something that small caused me that much pain. 
It's unbelievable. And when I think about the pain of a kidney stone versus the pain of labor, of giving birth, I wonder if passing a kidney stone feels more painful because the end result is this little speck. It's nothing. But labor doesn't feel as painful because the end result is life. And it doesn't mean the suffering is less. It doesn't mean the pain is less. And I think that actually many of us think of the gospel as, in a way, like we're passing a kidney stone. It's just about going to heaven when we die. It's just about surviving. It's like, this painful life, I've got to suffer through it, and, um, and then hopefully I'll get relief at the end. That's actually not the gospel story. That is not the paradox of the Christmas story. Mary is blessed, and she experiences pain. This is about saying yes to being God's doula. This is about saying yes to being a companion as God labors with us to bring about renewal and life into our lives and into the world around us. This is not an invitation to be comfortable. And so, if you've ever been invited to receive a gospel that was just about being comfortable, being happy, being just experiencing nothing but glee and freedom and awesomeness, uh, they are selling you a cheap gospel. But I will tell you that the gospel is more about is more than just passing a kidney stone. It's not about just holding on till you die, waiting to get to heaven one day, suffering. Like that's that's also not the gospel. The gospel is you will experience pain and suffering. If you choose to say yes to God, you will experience labor pains. And in, in fact, in Romans, it says that the whole world is groaning as if in the pain of labor, waiting for the sons of daughters to arrive, to, to rise up. That there is a pain involved in the labor of God's kingdom coming to earth. It's not an invitation to have a comfortable life, but it is an invitation to have a meaningful, everlasting life. Yes, there's joy in getting involved with God. Yes, God saves you from your sin. Yes, God brings you hope and peace and joy and love and all the things we talk about at Christmas. But it comes through labor. It comes through partnering with Him. So God is for you. Absolutely, that is God's posture. God is with you. That's the Christmas story, that he is present, that even when you're not aware of it, he is present in your story, that he did not stay in the stands. He is not watching you from afar. He is right there in the mess and the muck with you. But here's the thing. Those first two realities of the gospel, God for you, God with you, is true regardless of your posture, regardless of what you think, regardless of what you believe. Those things are true absolutely. The third piece, God in you, is dependent on you to say yes to him. You are pregnant with potential. You are pregnant with possibility. God invites you to let himself be formed in you. And in Mary, we see a woman who Christ, whom Christ was formed inside of. And what are we to be? We're to be men and women like Mary that Christ is formed inside of us. Mary was revered because she was the one who enacted out the very process of the good news and she said yes to God and God's kingdom came in her and through her. And now we have the opportunity thousands of years later to make the same decision and say yes to God 
I know you're for me. I know you're with me. But that's not enough. I want you to be in me. And I want to labor with you to see your kingdom come in my life and in this world. So put yourself in Mary's shoes. And the angel comes and says, God's for you. God's with you. But he wants to be in you. What do you say? Do you say yes? I invite you to stand as you ponder that yes and that question. about the Bible is that it doesn't shy away from the mess of our lives, the pain. It doesn't just ignore that. It actually engages that. We see a God that engages in that mess and he doesn't pretend that life does not involve suffering. In fact, God himself lived out this journey of suffering all the way to the cross. And so we have this paradox of suffering and hope. And they walk hand in hand. And Mary knew that. Mary said yes to that. And in our lives, we will experience pain. We will experience suffering. I know that many of you are walking in that right now. In levels of pain, whether that's relational pain, particularly in the Christmas season, sometimes the relational and family stuff just kind of rises to the surface in a profound way. Some of you are walking in physical pain. And God is for you. God is with you. And God wants to be in you and transform that pain. Because the reality is that this is the human experience. And we can either choose to give birth to a kidney stone or we can give birth to life. What do you say? I want to invite you to close your eyes bow your heads for a minute and I want to give you an opportunity this morning to say yes maybe for the first time maybe you've never said yes to God before given him permission to have his way in you and this would be your opportunity like Mary to say yes God may it be as you say may I become a doula may I become your servant may I become a May I experience life in me, your life in me, and bring that life into this world. Or maybe you are someone who has said yes before, but you found, find yourself in the, a place in your journey where you experience pain and suffering, and, and you need God to bring his redemptive gospel story to your pain. That this wouldn't be for no reason at all that but God would use it whatever might be a part of your story right now that God would use it to bring about his kingdom his hope his joy his peace his love into your life into the life of those around you that is the Christmas story so with your heads bowed and your eyes closed I'm just going to ask you if you want to say yes to God and I, I trust the Holy Spirit is speaking to you you would know what that yes means for you. If you, if you want to say yes to God, give him permission to be formed in you and through you this morning, I just want to invite you to raise a hand and say, I'm saying yes to God this morning. In the midst of my story, I'm saying yes. And I would encourage you, if you have raised your hand, 
not to miss the opportunity. I know often we have places to go and things to go. We just, we just rush out on a Sunday. Um, but we give ministry time at the end of every service. We have our prayer teams that come forward. Allow them to say yes with you. That it doesn't just sit with you, but you raise a hand and now you, you would come to someone and say, I want to say yes to God. Would you pray for me? As a first step of walking forward in that. So let me pray for you now. And I invite you at the end of service to come forward for prayer. We would love to pray for you. Lord, I thank you that I thank you that you are for us. Lord, I pray for each person in this room that maybe has an understanding or had this assumption that you weren't for them. Lord, I pray that they would encounter the truth and the reality that you are unequivocally for them. That you love them. And Lord, not only that you love them, but you didn't stay from afar, that you are with them. Lord, may may they sense in a profound and new way in this Christmas season that you're not watching their life from afar, but you are this Father that raced down into their world and is sitting there with them in whatever is going on in their lives. And Lord, I pray for each person this morning that raised their hand that acknowledge that they want to say yes to you, that they want to be, they want to see your life being formed in them and through them. That they want to not just labor for no reason, but they want to labor so that new life would come out of their story. Lord, I pray that you, that your Holy Spirit would fill them in Jesus' name, that you would fill them from their toes to their head. Lord, that you would bless them with your joy, with your peace, with your love, with your hope. Lord, that you would give them what they need, just like you gave Mary what she needed, to live out the call that they have on their lives. That they would receive the good news, the kingdom of God into their lives, and that they would partner with you in bringing it to the world around them. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Awesome. Thank you for coming. Again, our our prayer teams will be at the front. We would love to pray for you. Reminder, we have services at 1, 3, and 5 on Christmas Eve and no services on the 29th. We'll see you on Christmas Eve.